John. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. You have a nice, uh, nice holiday Christmas time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It was just dandy. Were you seeing a wedding? Were you at a wedding or something? Oh, I went to California. Yeah, for about a week. I I, uh, I went to Nabil's wedding to Allie Jane. Nabil being the drummer of the Long Winters. Okay. He married his longtime lady friend. Um at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, California. Is that a regular venue for uh, weddings out that way? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about regular, but it's Los Angeles, so everybody's doing, you know, everybody's goth down there. They're all doing quirky things, having weddings in cemeteries. Are and, they goth, and, your, your drummer? Oh, are they goth? Uh, I mean, there, I would say that they were gother than me. I'm not very goth. I was going to say, you don't seem to be goth at all. No, I was never, goth was not my trip. And so in that respect, I would say, yeah, they are slightly gother than I am. Maybe even a little gother than I am. I have always liked goth women, but Hmm. myself, I don't think I would, you know, I don't, I don't dress the part. Mm-hmm. But you, I used to date. I used to date a girl who worked at the um, Disney uh, Haunted Mansion back uh-huh. in the early '90s. I don't know if the term "goth" was a thing in the early '90s, but yes, it was. I don't remember the term, but I remember the the style and yeah. the Haunted Mansion attracted all of the few goth people in Orlando at the time. They all worked there. Sort of the Winona writers. Yeah, yeah. And so she was, she fit into that category and, uh, and worked at the Haunted Mansion and she had the like striped stockings and uh-huh, very, uh-huh. very nice. Pet spider, that type of thing. Yeah. I think I, I might, uh, I might have been the pet spider. You, ooh. you would think <laughs> that I would have been into goth girls. Yeah, I, th- I still I, think that you are. But I, why, why not? wasn't really, I wasn't really, um, I think I'm not really into, uh, you know, like typically not that into religious people uh, as, as, uh, as like partners. I love religious people. Yeah, you do. Religious people. I love them. Got religious people all around me in my life, but, but as like girlfriends, yeah, I've never really dated a religious girl. Isn't that interesting? I never really thought of it that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think of goth as a religion? Well, I think of goth as an expression of a religious tendency. And it's a and so it's a twisted religious tendency like it's bent and it's um ironically religious, but it is a, it's it's performing kind of religious rites and as a as a like a organizing function like you know Ooh, <laughs> and and it's done. It's done a, a lot of times in good humor, uh-huh. and it's it's meant to be sort of fun and fantastical. But it's definitely like there's a within goth like a fixation with death and the afterlife, and and um, and spooky things. Does it and, buttress up against the vampire thing? 
at all, or is that sure. just an external perception? Sure. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it does. I mean, goth is a goth. Really, really is a a, a wide spectrum. Impossible to generalize. Would you say? No, no. I think you could generalize. Okay. But uh, but you know, I think if you are like an English teenager listening to Joy Division in nineteen. 19- <laughs> 82 uh-huh. and you are and uh, i mean what what do you share in common with with um ed wood or i mean i i the twilight zone i'm not sure like where the boundaries are exactly it all orbits around clove cigarettes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but no i was i didn't i didn't i wasn't into vampire movies i don't like it's not that i don't like you know it i'm fine with it if a if a goth girl swept in right now into my room with her with her gauzy um, monsters dress on, the first thing I would do is is try and see if she was hovering over the you know like an inch off the floor. I yeah. want to make sure that she had her feet on the ground. <laughs> but I mean, I wouldn't like chase her out of here with a broom. Um, Were you more yeah. of a of a monsters or an Adams family? viewer i was a munsters uh, viewer but that had mo- more to do with what was on tv in my region at the time when i saw the adams family later it was confusing because it was because there's an awful lot of overlap with the munsters mm-hmm. um and i guess the adams family is the ur text is that right is the adams is the were the munsters a ripoff of the adams family yeah, I don't know if it's or was if it it's the other way around. No, the Adams Family's definitely came first. It was a comic strip back many, many, many years before that. I think mm. it gosh, maybe the forties is when yeah, the Adams Family know, started. I know the comic strip now that you mention it, yeah. And so they the Adams Family predated the Munsters in, in concept and form, and I think but they both came out on TV at the same time. Like the same year, I think. Yeah. And when I when I was growing up, I also remember that the Munsters seemed to be the main thing that was on. And I didn't know about the Adams family right away. I always, it was always the monsters. And I think that for me at the time, I feel like the monster storylines were more approachable to me than because they didn't, the one thing that was very different about the Adams family and the monsters, the Adams family they really, they hardcore lived it. You know what I'm saying? They, they, mm-hmm. they lived it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas the Munsters, it seemed like they, that's just sort of how they looked and acted. Whereas the, you know, like, they, and they didn't, they didn't seem to understand that they were different. The Munsters. The Munsters. They didn't get the fact that they were monsters, essentially. Like they kind of did, but they, they didn't really. Whereas right. with the, the Adams the, family, the jokes, yeah. yeah, the Adams family, they're always like, oh, you know, and our poor, we remember the, the, the pretty blonde girl that, uh, lived with them. Sure. They're always talking about how ugly she was and, yeah. you know, so they weren't really aware of it. Whereas the Adams family, they knew they were different and they sort of saw themselves as in a way superior to the regular people who were just crazy and they saw their way as different, but better. And they didn't expect people to understand them or be like them. Whereas the Munsters always struck me as kind of like 
they were sort of outcasts or misfits in a way, uh, but not on purpose and they didn't want to be. Whereas the Adams family, they were quite content to enjoy their money and mansion and creatures and things like that. And so that kind of more appealed to me, I think when I was a little older and, and saw them and then the movies came out and I, I still don't know how to feel about those movies. I, I had love, no idea there were movies. Oh, Angelica Houston uh, oh, and, right. and Raul Julia and then um, uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd as uh, Fester. Yes, I, I, I'm picturing it now. Um, I don't know about them. I, I go back and forth on, on liking the movies, but I've always been more of a fan. I mean, Morticia Adams has always been a not-so-secret crush of mine, so yep. Any, yep. anyone who plays her is golden. Morticia definitely influenced a lot of girls in my era. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think more uh, now. It's very interesting when you have a um, when you have a type. Do you think you have a type, Dan? Mm, you do. I don't know. I probably do, and I just don't know it. Have do other people say you have a type? No. 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 No one in your life is like, oh, there's a, that person is Dan's type. No. No, I think I've gone through phases where I liked a certain type for a while and then would change it. But yeah, you know, what, what about you? I think you might, you do, you definitely seem to have a type. I could probably pick your type out. Is that right? I think so. Well, a lot of people feel that way. Kind of, kind of not short hair, but maybe like, you know, low, low, wall call below maintenance hair, low maintenance hair. Um, kind of a, a little bit, I, th- I think brunette for you, darker hair for sure. Although I don't think you have rules. I'm just thinking what, what if I were to conjure up a woman, this is kind of the guidelines that I would, that I would do. She ha- I don't want to use the word bohemian because that conjures up a lot of things, but artsy would probably be a better word. A little, a little crazy. So she could be maybe a little, you know a little like she but i think what you like is if they have a straight job but they're completely not that way as soon as they leave the job like i think there's something you admire about somebody who can go and and sit in a in a stuffy boardroom and be in a meeting and then at the end of the day shed all of that and their true self emerges and you get to experience them the way they are in their real self mm-hmm. um Am I am I right on any of that? Well, you know, it's hard for me to um, to at all think of the people that I like as as being a, of a type, you know, yeah, uh, because they all are so and they're such distinct individuals to me. I find that if I look back at my relationships, it sure. seems to me that almost every one of them was initiated by the other person. So you mean you mean be, they they approached you mm-hmm. okay so it would be weird i mean then there are yeah, there are obviously um exceptions to that but uh it would be weird to think that i had a type and they were they were uh that and they recognized it <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know like people that that fit a uh, fit some kind of um parameters were the only ones that were attracted to me or somehow the only ones that that 
initiated a relationship with me or that, that weirdly people were trying to initiate relationships with me all the time, but the only ones I recognized and acknowledged were ones that were, uh, according to a pretty narrow, um, you know, like look, act and feel. So I don't know. I, I get teased a lot for having a type, but in every one of those instances, I could say, well, she's, she came up to me in a bar. She used to come into where I work all the time and kept leaving little notes under my, under my cash register. Mm-hmm. So it's, so anyway, it's confusing to me because I, I feel like I'm attracted to people across all uh, the whole range of human stuff. But it does seem like when, when, uh, when one girl leaves something here, it always kind of fits the next girl. That does seem weird. That's very weird. It's, it's like, also oh. weird that you would preserve those items and pass them on to the next girl. That's also sort of like a serial killer's, you know, <laughs> no! token or something. No, it's just that. And then you like know, only, you know, that that ring was taken <laughs> from the last woman that you. No, it's always put, some put down or jacket, some vintage jacket from the fifties that, are you stealing these items or no, not God. No, just ask. No, no, that's a thing. You know, that's a thing that girls do. They leave things behind. They leave things behind. And I, and it's people, people laugh at me and say, Oh, well, girls do that on purpose. They leave it behind. So they have a reason to come back. But there's, you know, like people have left things behind where it seemed to me like they had no intention of ever coming back. But I hate a cute, a cute fifties jacket to go to waste, right? I don't want to have. I mean, if it's cute, yeah. And if it's like, if it's vintagey, it's like that's a cute jacket. I don't want. I'm not somebody that's like that belonged to so and so. I'm throwing it away, or it goes immediately to the thrift store. It's like I keep it around. I don't like. It's not like the very next person that arrives in my house. I pull the jacket out and go put it on. Sometimes the jacket stays in the closet for years. Sometimes it's two girls later uh. that somebody finds it and goes, what's this? And I go, you want it? It's cute. They don't ask where it came from or. Well, it depends. It depends. Like you're saying, some of the, some of the people that I date maybe invent their own story about it. And go, no, oh, yeah, this is now, sure do they wind a reason up for keeping, this jacket being here. Keeping it? Are they keeping it? I hope so. So once you give it to them, now it's theirs. They're wearing it. Do you ever think that there's two women who've run into each other and the one girl says, oh my God, that jacket is so cute. I used to have one just like that. And she says, that's so funny. Yeah, my, uh, my ex-boyfriend uh, gave me this one. Do you think mm-hmm. that conversation has ever happened? I wonder. I wonder. I mean, Seattle's I- not that big of a place. It's not, you know, I don't know how I'm talked about, um, between the girls that I have, that I used to date. I do not know. I'm very curious. We would like to say thank you very much to Palm. Yeah, that's right. Palm, the maker of the original Palm Pilot. They're back with a new companion device to help you get one step closer towards digital detox. You know, think about it. You spend so much time on your phone. Every waking moment, phones have intertwined themselves into every aspect of our lives. You know, all you see around you is the top of uh, people's heads. They're hunched over their devices, even at dinners. You get the whole family absorbed into their device. Couples out on a date night just staring at their phones. 
Well, you know, but it makes sense. We want to stay connected, right? We want to know what's going on. We want to be reachable in case of an emergency of some kind. And you know what? Maybe you just want to check the weather and see if you need a sweater while you're out. Like, these are all reasonable. And sometimes you want to take a picture. Like, that's fine. You shouldn't beat yourself up about that. But there are ways to make it so that you're going to be less absorbed in that device that you have. And the Palm, the new Palm, is a great way to do that. Now listen, this is not a replacement for your smartphone, but it's connected to it. It syncs with your existing smartphone. So all your info is seamlessly connected so you can leave your smartphone behind. Now this thing is the size of a credit card. It fits easily in your wallet, in your pocket. It goes with you where your regular smartphone is just going to seem too big. And you're going to be too inclined to go and take your smartphone out and spend too much time staring at it. The Palm is designed for quick access. It's going to show you what you need to show you, let you do those things that you want to do, and then get out of your way. It has two cameras. It's got the Android OS and the full Google Play ecosystem, 4G, Wi-Fi. It has all the mobility and capability of a smartphone in just a super small little tiny package. You need to see for yourself how small this thing is. You can see it online. You can see that you can go to palm.com and you'll see the pictures. But the the true experience begins when you pick this thing up and hold it yourself. You can do that at any Verizon store anywhere. Go there and check it out. That's what really uh changed my opinion about this because when I first saw it I thought th- oh, it's just a, it's a small phone. But it's much more than that, and you can't really appreciate it until you see it for yourself. It is intensely cool, and this is exactly the kind of thing I think that we all need to get a break from our big phones. Go to palm.com. That's where you're going to learn more. Go check out how light and small it is at the Verizon store, and uh, thank you so much to Palm for sponsoring the show. There are there are plenty of people, I think, that... Um, maybe have a sense of it like there's so much of there's so much of my romantic life where i am oblivious <laughs> and like some of it i'm intentionally oblivious some of it i'm just oblivious i'm just i'm just generally oblivious to how i'm perceived um like i know how i'm i know how i'm perceived within the performance of a relationship right i mean i know that that people that I date, I know what they're frustrated by. I know they're like, Oh my God, you can't possibly be serious about this. And I'm like, I'm serious about it. You know, I, I know what the, I know what the jokes are. I know what the, um, I know what the general assessment of me is kind of, but I don't know what it's like in when people are speaking in confidence to one another. And, and I'm genuinely curious you know, I don't, and, and, and part of it makes me sad, right? Because I don't know if I'm thought of fondly. I don't know if, uh, if people that I've dated when they run into one another, whether they sit, whether they're interested even to like get a cup of coffee and sit and go, uh, what was it like for you? And you know, where they sit and talk about, or whether whether it's always um, whether it's always tinged yeah. by some kind of bitterness or jealousy or I mean because the thing is I talk about my friends mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not somebody that that believes it's a betrayal to sit and talk honestly about a friend that we have in common and say like 
you know, and tell stories and laugh, but out of love, you know, like I, that there are whole cultures of, of people in America, at least where the idea that you would talk behind someone's back Mm. is, um, is just intrinsically a betrayal. Like don't talk about people behind their back. And I know there are a lot of people that feel like don't talk about me when I'm not there. I, and I identify that as a kind of Texas idea. Um, like a, maybe like a, not a Southern thing, but kind of a, like a central Southern thing, uh, like a cowboy mentality. And that goes from Texas to Montana where it's just like, if a person ain't here, don't talk about them type of yeah because they can't they can't defend themselves or yeah, stand up for themselves of, or all that all that stuff but it's like defend yourself stand up for yourself what are we talking about like two friends meet and your name comes up and you don't want them talking about you it's not part of my culture and you know and and, and really my culture is if two people care enough about you to sit and talk about you, you would rejoice at it. Even if you never knew it, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that's the, the whole, somebody calls you up and you're like, were your ears burning? Cause we were just talking about you. And the person goes about what? And you're like, well, we're not going to tell you. And it's, it's Mary. It I feel be. like you're obligated to tell them if they ask, that would be the deal what, that I would strike is like, you right? talk, talk about me all you want. But if I ask what you said, you've got to, you've got to come clean. Oh, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think the implication, I don't need a transcript, but you know, the implication is that we were enjoying talking about you because you're an enjoyable part of our lives. Right. If somebody's like, what were you talking about? I would say, oh, well, (laughs) we're talking about how you overreacted to things and how you made a big deal out of something that wasn't a big (laughs) deal. But, uh, but I don't know, I don't have a very clear picture about how people talk about me when I'm not there and, and, um, whether or not, I mean, I, I think if you, I think if you're, if you, if you're a good person or you're trying to be a good person and you're generally not doing things that seem to piss other people off, then most likely what they're saying is nice things about you. Oh, do you remember the time John did this thing and he, oh my God. Yeah, that was great. I think, I think I'm a figure of fun to people. I mean, there are a lot of, I, I operate at a few different levels and one of them is one where I'm conscious of being kind of ridiculous and there's lots of opportunity for two people to say, um, to point out the things that I do that are, that are funny, the ways in which, I mean, you know, you did it the last couple of times where you're like, it's 1108. <laughs> you're right on time. Yeah, yeah. Eight minutes late every time. <laughs> and you know, that's an example of a thing that if you ran into somebody and, and my name came up, you'd be like, Oh, eight minute late Roderick. And mm-hmm. the other person would go, ha lol. Mm-hmm. I recognize that reference, you know, that type of thing. I know there are a lot of those little, uh, little, quirks that would be an easy thing, not, not just to tease me about, but to identify to another person that you knew me and were a friend. Cause that's a lot of that kind of talk sure. is like, Oh, we're talking about person X. Well, I know them 
and I have intimacy with them. And so here's a story that will indicate how well I know them. And the other person goes, I recognize that story because I also am intimate with them. And you trade some stuff back and forth like that, right? Oh, Dan Benjamin, you know, he always smells like pipe smoke. Am I right? (laughs) Yes, Dan's famous pipe smoke smell. (laughs) That robust smell of pipe tobacco that follows Dan everywhere. But like if two girls I dated who presumably knew me intimately were sitting at a table and, and doing that, doing the like, well, I knew him pretty well. And the other person said, I also knew him pretty well. And then they were, they were talking about it that way because I haven't, you know, I honestly have not dated that many people seriously, but also I'm not a hundred percent sure whether any of them ever knew me very well. I think, and I don't know whether even they would say if you pressed them how well they knew me. Um, so what they would say to one another, I don't, I don't have a clear picture of it. And I think, I think there are a lot of my sense is that if you dated someone for two years, you would, you would have a pretty good sense that they knew you pretty well and, and what they would say, but I'm, I'm in the dark about it. And, you know, we just had Christmas and even my own family, I mean, just looking at the Christmas presents that they that they bought me my own family knows me well enough to pick Christmas presents for me that are uh, that are in the general you you they're defensible in the sense that you could point to it and go like I understand why you bought that for John because that is something that is like John like but there's also an element to the to them that's like oh you're you don't know what I'm really uh, all about I mean it's it's hard to buy presents for me obviously and hard to find um, the thing if you're if, if you put 10 pairs of shoes out if somebody put 10 pairs of shoes in front of your wife and said which one which pair of these shoes is the most Dan do you think that she would pick accurately yeah I think she would I mean unless they're really really similar shoes so you know, for me, I think if there were 10 pairs of shoes that laid out in front of the people that are in my family and they were, and they were meant to pick out the, the ones that were the closest to me. Yeah. I feel like they'd get, they'd get close, but, but you know, maybe it is that they wouldn't re they wouldn't realize how fast the, or how steep the bell curve is, you know, like within that 10 pairs of shoes, there are two that would work for me. And the remaining eight just aren't even on them. They aren't under consideration, right? It's not even a bell curve. It's just like a, there's like a spike in the middle of a, of a long flat desert. So when my, you know, when my family or when my, my girlfriends like are trying to pick out things for me, I usually, I look pretty carefully and go like, are you paying attention to me enough that you would be able to, to reach into this bag of marbles and pick out the marble that I care about and be able to say why, or are you just casting in the dark kind of like, 
oh, he's got a lot of orange things, and this is an orange marble, so it's the one that he wants, the right. orange one. Well, yeah, like if people knew your favorite color was this orange, and there was a pair of orange shoes, they'd say, oh, that, he must like that one. Right. But if there were, <clears throat> you know, if there was a pair of orange shoes and a pair of blue shoes, but the orange shoes were a brand new reproduction of a 1970s shoe and the blue shoe were the actual 1970s shoe, I'm, you know, you've introduced now another element into the decision making and you would have to know where the, where the break point is. Do you think right? people get a good read on you uh, pretty quickly though? Like if someone hung out with you for an afternoon or two, do you think that they would come away knowing all that they would need to know to pick the right shoe? Well, see the sh the shoe thing is the is just a small that's an that's an adjunct. I think absolutely no in the shoe thing, but also you know I'm I'm flirty as we've discussed on this show before. And what flirtation often looks like is that you are you're playful with other people and and they and they may not perceive it as playful, but part of flirtation I think at its at its foundation is that you feel like interacting with other people is, is play. Uh, and so if I met somebody and I felt like, well, when I meet somebody, the first thing I do is try and play just in the way that I say hello. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if you introduce, if someone's introduced to me or if you introduce yourself to me or if I introduce myself to you, my manner is very playful. It's just like, hi, nice to meet you. You know, hello. Like I, I just start right off eyes shining, body English open. I will, I'll add a little flourish to a, a small flourish to some aspect of that initial greeting, whether it's just a flash of the eye or a, the way that I extend my hand it's, it's encoded in it. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to, I'm ready to meet you. I'm ready to play. And the other person sometimes is also playful and they say, nice to meet you. And we're already, we already know each other better than the five people that are standing around us. Even some of the five people that have known us for a long time. Like we already are on an, another level just because of the playfulness. Now, a lot of times it turns out that people are, are share playfulness in common with me, but nothing else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that can be dangerous, right? Because you meet somebody and you're like, okay, let's, you know, let's play. And then it turns out, oh, wow, you're dangerous or, or, oh dear, you're playful. But, but, um, you know, like, uh, bad, but, but more often than not, if someone's ready to play, then you can, you can be assured that you're also going to, at least for the length of, of, of this interaction, you know, you're going to get along and it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And if somebody's not ready to play, they communicate that right away too. And they communicate it. It's all very subtle at the, at, at the start, but if they don't, if they respond with suspicion, 
in their body English or their the way they extend their hand or the lack of flash in their eye, you know, I can reel it back in. And, and the thing is, it's not like thespianic. It's not like I go, hello, nice to meet you. And they're like, oh, and all of a sudden we're we're doing Monty Python bit. <laughs> it's just like it's on the it's on the DL, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because that's performance, if you could spend an hour with me. And we could be having a jolly old time, but you wouldn't really know. <clears throat> you wouldn't really know that much about me. I mean, there I don't. There are plenty of people that think that that can't un, can't believe that I was that I that I'm not the happiest person they've ever met. Like happy because I am happy to be in a lively exchange with somebody, you know, I am happy to be out in the world and be, uh, playful with other people. And I think it's, I, I've been reflecting on this a lot lately because of all of your and my long conversations about happiness. Right. Um, and I think what, what we haven't talked about as much is positivity because I think in general, I'm pretty positive and it, and it, and it, it doesn't seem like it, right? Because I, because I'm so down on myself and I'm so down on happiness and I'm so down on, um, and my mood can, can be so dark, but in, in general, I'm extremely positive. Yeah. I'm optimistic about the future. I encourage all my friends to pursue their dreams. If you try something new, I assume it's going to work. I assume that you're going to succeed. I assume that your intentions are good. You know, like I go through life with a, with a, um, like a, a, an innate and pretty, pretty constant level of positivity. Like when I walk out the door in the morning, I assume it's all going to work out. Mm-hmm. Now I'm battling all the time voices that are telling me I'm the bad element in every situation. When I wake up in the morning, I assume everything's going to work out except that I'm going to, if, if something foils it up, it's probably it's something inside of me, some voice talking to talking to some other voice inside my head. But that positivity, I think, is something that's recognized by people in the world um, because it's visible. You know, I'm never the one that's like, well, it's too late now. Or, you Mm -hmm. know, like, oh, that's your plan? Well, did you think of the 10 reasons that won't work? You know, no, not, not how I interact with people. And I don't drop little snide barbs that are, into conversation that sound like they're friendly, but they're meant to undermine people. You know, I don't, I don't disparage people in little ways. I say little Barbie things, but, but generally they're, they're meant to be, they're meant to propel, you know, they're meant to, to say like, I see you. I know you don't kid around here. Don't let us, you know, don't, don't try to pretend like you can't do this. You know, that's my attitude. And, uh, and I, but I think people see it and it's easy to, 
to think that they know they know who I am. They know that, and maybe they do. Maybe they know me better than than I know myself. But but what are those conversations like between people when they meet out in the world? Like I don't hear back from those, and I and I'm oblivious, so I don't I don't register what those might be. Yeah. My assumption is that when people talk about me, they're like, ugh. Uh, Probably not. Don't know. I'm telling you, it's not, it's not like that. Well, but I, I guess the, the way that my, the way that my head works, I feel like if two people who know me pretty well meet and they go, Oh, isn't he great? Isn't he amazing? Wow. I, also, I don't think that would please you in any way. <laughs> no, <laughs> it wouldn't at all. And I, and I would, I would, I would take that as, as much of a bruise as people going <laughs> like he sucks. I mean, if someone's like, Oh, what a jerk, what a dickhead. You would rather have that than what a sweet guy. What a lovely, lovely person. What I would like is for somebody to say, oh, what a dick. And the other person to go, I know, right? He's such a See? jerk. Yeah. And then the first person's like, the worst. And then the second person's like, couldn't be worse. And then they start laughing. Like that, that would make me happy. Because that would be, that's how I assume uh, uh, people, I mean, that, I w- I, I, <laughs> that would feel to me like they knew me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, and I don't know why. I don't know why I would prefer that to two people like he's the sweetest. I know, and I think there are. I think there probably could be conversations where somebody said he's the sweetest, and he doesn't know it, or you know, as uh, my 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 fondest wish would be that that two women that I dated would say would meet each other coming through the rye and would say. I really think he meant well and for whatever reason um, couldn't pull it off. But, you know, I want, I, I want every conversation to end with, but I'll love him forever. I really would love him to say, I'll, I'll love him forever, but I can never let him know it <laughs> <laughs> because they don't let me know it. And so I just hope that it's because – it's because they can't let me know it rather than that they go, oh, the day that I stopped seeing him, I stopped thinking about him. And and now that you bring him up, I'm remembering all these things that make me mad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be some uh, texts from my ex kind of thing. Because I don't. I don't maintain a lot of contact with ex-girlfriends and that contact always sort of feels strained and uncomfortable and it's one of the things that kind of makes me sad i'm unfortunately i would be one of one of those people that would maintain friendships with his exes if they let him and i i don't know what type that is it seems like probably not everybody's favorite type who's like i know we've been broken up for four years but hey is that because you want to sort of remain friends for the sake of being friends or is it because you think, you know, 
maybe maybe you get lucky once in a while, little little booty oh. call or something, or what? What's the or just because you just like people and you'd want to be friends with everybody? Yeah, I don't. There's no booty call element. It's a uh, yeah. It's just like we knew each other so well. How could we possibly ever not be friends at least at some level? Because I, it's not like a relationship ever ended. I never had a relationship end where <clears throat> the other person discovered something about me that they didn't know. You know what I mean? Like if, you, if you're if you cheating on somebody and they find out mm-hmm. and break up with you, it's because there was something about you they didn't know, which is that you were sleeping with somebody else. Right, you were doing doing something behind their back. Right. You were lying and lying about who you were to them. Because mm-hmm. if you were coming home and saying like, I'm yours. And then you also were sleeping with somebody else. You were like, well, I wasn't telling you the whole truth. Right. And my relationships don't end that way. Like I think that they all know who I am from the start. And then they, and they all feel like they can change that. <laughs> they start off knowing that this is a challenge. And I, I, maybe it, maybe other relationships, maybe a more normal course is that you start off in a relationship and you go, wow, I don't see a flaw here. And then gradually those flaws become apparent. I, I, I guess I assume that when you meet somebody who's very playful from the start, hello, nice to meet you. And you go, hello, I'm attracted to your playfulness. I'm attracted to yours. You're also conscious from the start. Like, here we go. This is going to be, this relationship is already trouble. Do you maintain that playfulness and flirtatiousness throughout the relationship or does it change over time? I, I wish that I had done that better, uh, in my past. I think that as I think that the seriousness in me comes out in romantic relationships hard Mm. when it comes out because I'm so afraid or I was so afraid of love. And so that playfulness is real easy for me to perform as a sort of social lubricant and a, and a kind of um, just a general affect with people but as soon as I'm in a, as soon as the person goes, no, actually I'm into you, then I, then all the seriousness, all the weight of the, of my responsibility to the world and to other people's happiness and my obligation to be a good man and to, um, and to be careful and to not hurt people, all of that just comes rushing in to the room, which had formerly been just a fun, lighthearted room, like a little dance hall and everyone's dancing the minuet. And then all of a sudden the, the French revolution pours in and Robespierre is standing there, you know, thumping a book on the podium and the dance party's over. And that's, that's too bad. I wish that the lightheartedness, because I'm, I'm still lighthearted. I'm, I see the, I see the humor in, in life and try to talk about it, but boy, I can be a drag (laughs) because I'm so on guard. And so 
and feel so much responsibility and take responsibility that isn't mine. And then, you know, like I, I agonize. So when I think back at my relationships and think back to how I could have performed them better, which I do all the time, one of the things is that I just wish I'd maintained a kind of lightness. Mm. And I don't typically date lighthearted people. The, 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 those relationships are intense because those, uh, because the people that, uh, that I end up with are similarly like heavy. But don't you think that that's a normal, normal progression of a relationship that in the beginning it's light because the relationship is light. And then as the relationship becomes more serious and you get to know the other person better, that your conversations or topics or emotional openness intensifies. I mean, doesn't that, that seems normal to me. That seems correct. Yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I, there are relationships that don't get dark. Um, I see them all the time. I see people and they're maybe they're in, maybe the relationship is intense, but it isn't, um, dark. And a lot of my mine end up dark. And, and kind of fast. Um, I honestly don't, I honestly don't know because I don't know if I've ever been in, I don't know if I've ever had a healthy relationship, Dan. I don't know what it would even look like. Has anyone ever? I don't know. I mean, I see people who have relationships where they feel like they're, they have charted a kind of common course the thing that the one person does is compatible with the thing that the other person does. And at the end of the day, they, they're not doing the same thing, but they're, but they're doing something that's compatible. How was your day? Fine. Here's what I did. Oh, how was yours? I was fine. I did this. Oh, that's great. We're, and now we're here. (laughs) And, um, what I, what I do, what I'm doing just doesn't feel very compatible with what anybody else would be doing. It feels always that it's happening in the shed out back or that it's, it's happening, it's happening to the side while, while life is proceeding. Other people are doing life and the mailman comes at a certain time of day and, and dinner is made at dinner time. And then I'm like bouncing along like careening in and like, Oh my God, is it dinner time? I'll eat dinner. I'll eat dinner with you guys. I was, I happened to be here and it happened to be dinner time. And then, you know, off I go like a, like a sidecar that just came unmoored from its motorcycle. And I've, I've never met a person that had those same rhythms. Mm -hmm. And I, and if I did know somebody that had those rhythms, I don't know if that would work at all. Uh, I, I like, I don't think there's, I don't think two people could be in this, this sidecar. Yeah. And if they were in one or, or in a motorcycle even, um, 
and were off on their own rhythm and we just clanged into each other at random intervals on a 30 hour cycle, maybe, maybe that would be, maybe that would work. But, but the, um, but it, 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 I, I've never lined up with somebody where the, where the energy moving through a day had enough contact points that it felt like we had, had reg, regularity of any kind. And that's not what everybody's looking for. Um, I have it now in my life because of my kid. And we've talked about this a lot. Yeah. I have regularity points now because it, because five your, times a your day kid and your podcast and yeah, right. I have, I have my shows every morning at 10, my shows, I have my shows, <laughs> Kelka shows, your programs, my programs. <laughs> and then I have, you know, and, th- and five times a day, I think about where my daughter is, you know, like it's not, it's not that an alarm goes off and, and I, and I go, Oh, I have to, be there at this time, although that does happen, but also just, I think about where she is. And so I think about, and so then I think about where I am and I think about where she is and I think how I can get from where I am to where she is. And that's just, uh, it isn't an obligation as much as it is an affinity. And I think in, I think for a successful relationship, maybe you would have to have that element with the person that you loved. Where is the person I love right now? How can I get from where I am to them? Um, and that's how you end up being somebody like me who, who is successful in love. Because for most people, the schedule takes care of it, right? Like I'm off work, now I'm going home. And you don't have to insert the question of where is my love and how do I get to them? Because you get home from work, you presume that your love is there or you have a plan, you know, a daily plan of like, if you sleep together in the same bed, you know where they are in the morning. And if you sleep there, you know where they are at night and four other places in the day you can intersect with each other and, and that becomes a matrix. But for me, I've never thought I've never had that matrix. And so every time I'm, every time I, I spend time with somebody, it has to be intentional. It has to be like, where are they? I need to seek them out. I want them now. I want to find them now. And that's an awful lot of opportunity to, as many opportunities as there are to find them, there are also that many opportunities to not find them. And, and all you have to do is go a couple of days without finding them and and it starts to be the elephant in the room where have you been oh i was just doing this bumbling along sidecar came off the motorcycle oh well you didn't want to see me in any of that time oh i did i just didn't manage to put all put all the pieces together you know like it's it was for me at least a constant problem that there wasn't <clears throat> that that I had to rely on affinity alone to keep my relationships alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there 
that I never allowed or there never was built in the just basic structure of like, well, I don't really want to, I'm like, I'm not personally driven right this moment to see you and have you in my arms, but we're here together because of the nature of our, of our structure. And so love, love the one you're with. Yeah. So we're putting the, that's right. So we're putting the time in, (laughs) right. We're just putting the time in with each other. And, and the, the, and what it means is that you don't have to every day think every day isn't a referendum on whether or not you should be together, which it always ended up kind of feeling like with me that every single, that every three days we had to have another discussion about whether or not I cared about them because I was off, you know, I was flying along kind of beside life as it was, as it was ongoing. But my God, what would it, what would it look like otherwise? You know, I went to a show not that long ago and there was a person at the show who was obviously a musician. She was clearly like, she was not, I did not see her perform, Mm -hmm. but I saw her in the room and I was like, well, there's clearly a musician, like a performer, just the way she was sort of swanning around the room. And so I was intrigued enough by her to find out who she was and started and then did what I guess you do in the modern day, which is follow her on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I've never met her. <clears throat> I have no idea whether she's aware of my existence, but I watch her on Instagram and I think a performer, like I've dated a couple of performers, but always casually Never like I've never had a girlfriend, long-term girlfriend who was also a singer or artist even. And so I, I watch this person. I'm not, I'm not like so intrigued by her that I log on every day and I'm like, what is she doing? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I honestly do not know her name, but she's a person in my Instagram feed that when she pops up, I go, Oh, right. That person. And I watch her. Uh, like I look at her posts and I go, huh, what would it be like honestly to even spend a long weekend with this person? Because this person is a performer. Like they are, their public self is all about putting on a show. What would that be like? I mean, do you think another musician or performer would better understand your schedule and your lifestyle and your, um, your MO? No, not, not Kathleen Edwards and I had a, a very intense relationship, um, for a long time, but it was, you know, she lives in Canada and that was, a and it was not, it was, it was a romantic relationship, but it was not on the table as a romantic relationship. Like we didn't, we never, um, it was like a, it was like a spiritual relationship. Mm-hmm. Like we weren't, we never dated. We never were, um, like it wasn't openly a romantic relationship. She ended up dating Boney Vare for a long time. And that was, uh, you know, that was kind of the 
it definitely interrupted our spiritual path as a as a partnership not a, not as a couple but as a as partners in the sense that we were i think we sh- we w- were on a common course we shared some curiosity about the world and she had she had that sort of spirit but she was also she's grounded she's a grounded person she doesn't feel like she is i don't think or didn't but she sought gr- being grounded and i felt like she was grounded she grounded me but i was never able to be the be as grounded as she was or even kind of meet her there because i was too scattered mhm um and we did you know we we wrote a few songs together we did some performances together we spent a lot of time together um enough that it that it could you could say that we had uh like cohabitability we could have lived in a big house or we could have gone on a long trip together and she didn't you know she didn't take any bs mm-hmm. but also she she wasn't a drag um i had another uh woman in my life named kristen who was a a actor and a playwright mm-hmm. and she was incredibly creative like and the and the most i think the person that was that burned the brightest and maybe was the least grounded person I ever met in my life. Uh, just a comet streaking across the sky. Always. I mean, always burning, burning, burning 200 degrees all the time. And somehow she sustained it because she was just, she was burning everything. All the peat went mm. on the fire. Mm. Um, but, and we would, and we would collide in these, in these um, intense intense periods, and for for a long time, we had a we had an intense and long term partnership, but not. Uh, but you know, it was it was like it was we were kind of lashed. It's hard to say whether I was the boat and she was the tempest. I was the boat and she was lashed to the mast. <laughs> she was the boat and I was lashed to the mast. Right, right. Maybe I was the tempest and she was the boat. Um, but we were never like two people in a boat in a tempest, which I think is what you maybe aspire to in, in that situation. But both Kristen and Kathleen, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't describe those as boyfriend, girlfriend Mm -hmm. relationships or even, um, that we were, how, how do you put this in a way that is acceptable to speak aloud? Uh, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we were lovers even. Yeah. Something else, you know, some, some other some other connection. Um, but 
otherwise, no, most of my serious girlfriends have been much more rooted in the here and now, you know, they're not, um, artists, but, but are doing real work, you know, like, um, if they are doing art, it's making, it's making things, uh, rather than like making words or songs or show it's not, they're not show people, you know, right. if they're, if they're making art, it's a, it's that they're making things that they're crafting things. And maybe it is that they're grounded in a different way. And that's something that I'm seeking or that's something they feel like they can provide me. I'm not sure. You know, my mom is a, if, if my mom had an art, it would be a craft. She would have made things. She, she came up in a time before that was a thing you, you, um, she wasn't like a crafty mom. She wasn't making home dioramas or whatever a crafty mom would, would do right in the seventies. But you know, she's a, she's a maker of things. And, um, I guess in a way we're always trying to recapitulate our relationship with our opposite sex parent in the world. Hmm. But it, I think about it a lot because I'm still at 50 years old, still in the mix somewhat, still trying to find a path that opens new opportunities for fulfillment or happiness. You know, I'm not trying to find somebody to date that <clears throat> is like someone in the past. I'm not looking like I didn't break up with somebody and say like, I've got to find someone else to fill that void. I'm always still hoping that I'll meet someone who is entirely new, transforms me and transforms like the, the whole way that I think about relationships. And that's a high bar. But it, uh, but I don't mean it to be, you know, it could be, it could, I think I could be transformed by simplicity as much as by complexity. Mm -hmm. If someone just had a, the inner strength or the confidence to take me on and to be simple. And you, do you, do you like it more when you're the person you're dating, like has their whole own life and all their own stuff going on and. Uh, and then like fully independent like that, or do you, do you enjoy a lot more, more overlap than that? Well, that's a, <clears throat> that's a, a really good question. Who knows? Like, I don't, I don't have a, when people say that person is John's type, mm -hmm. they're not talking just about a physicality like a shared physicality of the people that I've dated, but also a kind of attitudinal mentality, a kind of, a kind of way 
like the people that were too difficult for other people to date <laughs> or the, you know, the ones that also were, were cutting a, a pretty deep rut across the world, struggling mm-hmm. in their own way, you know, like putting stuff together, a lot of energy, but, but a lot of, a lot of passion, but a lot of trouble. So it's a, it's a 1000% question. Like I would have said, I think up until recently that I wanted somebody that was completely independent. Um, because that always seemed like the right answer because I'm so independent that if they were independent, then we would both be independent and that wouldn't clash. But I've tried that a thousand times and it just doesn't play out that way. That kind of peaceful co-independence. It's I think extremely rare and I don't think maybe it's the easiest thing to snap together when your lives are so on, you know, already in progress. I feel like you, you maybe would have better luck, um, at a younger age meeting somebody that was fiercely independent and carving out some thing. I think it would be possible now for me to meet somebody who had their own life And they had their own home and I had my own home and we had a relationship that we transacted somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. But that would be a very adult situation, right? I mean, that would be, and, and I've, and, and, and that's appealing to me. Someone who's like a lawyer who works downtown and has her own place, uh, like a nice little two bedroom right. bungalow somewhere that she right. has decorated that she likes. And she comes over here and I go over there. I just don't know that, <clears throat> you know, that uh, whether or not that's a thing that you get into where you go, this is going to be the next three years of our lives before it runs its course or whether you can really look at that and say, Oh, well let's, let's see if this is manageable for, for a decade. Recently, the, the, the idea of someone who is not independent, who is, you know, who says like, I'm just going to cast my lot with you. It's for the first time it ever, it, it seems like a possibility. I'm not even saying that it's intriguing or that, that I could see it working, but just that it's not, I don't, um, I don't cross it off just automatically because I don't anymore feel like independence is that real in a way. It's not, it's not a deciding factor. You don't just look independent and say you're independent and actually accomplish independence. Right. And also independence real or performed isn't, hasn't produced great results. So what, what, what would it look like? I, I, I understand that someone coming into this house where I live now and trying to put themselves in here in any meaningful way would be impossible. Mm-hmm. You couldn't arrive here with two suitcases and say, I live here now because, because it, this, 
you know, my home is such an, an exoskeleton and an ex- exploded diagram of what's inside me. Um, every single thing in here has a, has a line pointed back to some place in, in my heart or soul. And so where are you going to live in here? You know, you're just going to curl up in some, you're going to put three feet of closet space and call it yours and fill up two drawers in a dresser and say like, I'd like to hang a, I'd like to hang a photo or two, please. But, but I do feel like someone could, I do feel like there's a way for someone to say, you know, one of the versions of partnership is to make a special project out at a focal point somewhere 50 feet out in front of us where you recognize that this, the, the project is not I'm doing my project, you're doing your project and we meet at dinner. Mm-hmm. And the project isn't um, – we work on my project for a while and then we work on your project for a while. And that's what partnership looks like. There's a version of it, which is the project is this thing, 50 feet in front of us that we're trying to accomplish. And we have different skills. And if we applied your skills and my skills to get us there we have a better shot and that doesn't feel like independence it doesn't feel like codependence and Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like one of these contemporary partnerships where the idea of equality is well we've talked about you for 15 minutes now we're going to talk about me for 15 minutes I did the dishes on Tuesday, you do the dishes on Wednesday kind of partnerships. Yeah. But it's something it's something else. Like what do we want? We want to um we want to build something. Well, how are we going to do that? What what are our respective skills? Well, you're good at hammering and I'm good at <laughs> nail sorting. You know, <laughs> a like, match made in heaven. Yeah, right. Some something where you you look at some of the great partnerships and you think, "Oh, I see. There's a there are the there are the Diego Rivera Freda Kahlo partnerships. But there are also all the ones where where one person is the one that we think about. The person that made the art or held the office or um, took the slings and arrows, died a martyr, whatever. Right. But then there was the person that was their partner that isn't recorded as the, as the one that did the act, but the person that did the act could not have done it without the, like literally could not have done it if they hadn't had a um like a 
partner that shared that goal, either consciously or unconsciously shared that goal, consciously being like, yes, we agree on this goal and we're working toward it. The other, the unconscious or the, maybe the older model is, um, I'm with a person who is pursuing this goal and I love them. And so I'm going to do what they need. More of a, like a supportive or secondary role. Supportive, but, but like in the end, you know, Martin Luther King, despite all his transgressions, um, like, yeah, I don't think he could have done it without Coretta Scott just because how, how are you going right, to, how are you going to, how are you going to get up in the morning and, and, um, and do everything? I mean, he's, he's there writing his sermon, but life is going on. And I think I need a more active partner than that, right? Someone that says, we could do something interesting. We just need to lay these pieces out differently. Take some things, take some things out of this bin and put them in this bin. Because so much of the, so much of the struggle that we talk about here on this program, for me at least, is that, uh, that everything's all in one bin or I'm every morning I wake up and there's just all these little robot Napoleons marching around bouncing off of walls <laughs> and they all, they all have long, long noses and do jiggity jigs. And I'm trying to get down and get the, get a cup of coffee in me and, and I'm, you know, and I greet them all and they greet me, but there's, you know, I, but I, it doesn't take long before I don't feel like I have any control over them even, even though I made them. Um, so, so there's a version of that, that, that seems like it's just kind of stepping through the gauze mm. for me where I go, that isn't, you know, I'm not looking for someone who's fiercely independent necessarily, but rather someone who has the, who has enough interest in, in me that they're willing to turn their ferocity toward a common goal. You know, like uh, my whole, my whole life, people have turned their ferocity onto me, hoping that they can mold me into a different person, make me a better partner to them. And that's a, that's a, uh, it's not something that has worked before. You mm. can't just like turn and th- because I've dated ferocious people and they've turned their energy toward improving me and it doesn't, it doesn't take. And I don't know whether it just never occurred to anyone or whether that where I didn't have enough faith in myself that it seemed possible I, one of my earlier girlfriends, a woman named Ellen, she and I dated when I was 23 maybe and she was 21. Mm-hmm. She said to me at one point after we had broken up in that immediate aftermath where she was really letting me have it. She said, you know, you, you could have 
everything. If you could just pull it off, but you, <laughs> but you don't, you don't pull it. Off. <clears throat> what what like, exactly did she mean by that? She meant that, you know, there's this f- sort of fantasy of a, of a 1993 guy who, um, who had a who had the kind of cool the creative guy that that um well i think that people perceive me to be but that i i didn't i didn't have enough confidence in myself to really stand there and say this is it this is who i am what i'm doing I was second, I was too second guessy, Mm. you know, like, is this, am I doing this? Okay. Is this all right? Is this so, am I, is this, is everybody cool? And what she was saying is like that I was blowing it because all those, all that checking back, all that self doubt made it impossible to restart the the suspension of disbelief that was necessary to to get where I was going you know it needed to be like I learned with my like my brief foray uh, over the last few years into um, dominant submissive culture mm-hmm. the right, first thing right. that, the first thing the submissives say is don't ever ask if you're doing it right don't ever let don't ever break the the fantasy mm. that you're in charge if you are the dom. Now we understand that you can't be always. And we understand also that the submissives are always the ones really in charge somehow. But the, but you, you cannot interrupt it by saying, and this is, you know, this is what's so challenging about having a safe word, for instance, is that if you have a safe word, you can't, you have to trust it. You have to trust the safe word is there. You can't say, is this okay? Are you, are we fine? Because the safe word is there. If you're not, then the, you have the safe word, but in the midst of it, you cannot say, you know about the safe word, right? You can use that at any time. <laughs> well, I mean, usually, and again, I'm I'm not speaking from direct personal experience, but it, you would think that the person who's being the dominant person would in have to, to some degree, enjoy that role of being the dominant person in that scenario, and dread would dread hearing the safe word that that, that the attitude isn't, "Hey, sweetie, like do you know, you can use it." safe word if you want it's more like i hope she doesn't use that freaking word again because i'm having too much fun right now like that's what i would think the dumb would be thinking or wanting to hear like i hope she doesn't say that again that ruined it last time you would think you would think right because the person who's doing it are they doing it as a favor to the other person you know what i'm saying like are they being a dom because their girlfriend wants them to be and they're not really, or 
because I would think if they were into it, they'd be like, let's see how far we can go. Let's see how far we can take this. You know, like you think of, you think of, uh, this will be a weird analogy. You think of improvs on stage, right? And there are these people up there performing on stage, coming up with some crazy skit that keeps getting funnier and funnier. The, the, how far can we push it? Can I make one off color joke? Can I make two? Can I take it to another level? Will the audience still be along for the ride? You know, the excitement is building. You would almost think it'd be kind of like that. Like how, how far can I take this? before it's too much for this other person who who will then have to have to use the safe word if I or right up to the point where they're going to use the safe word. And then I know intuitively as a dom, right how far I can take this other person. And that's where I'm going to take them because like they would want to do it, right? If not, then maybe they they're in the wrong business. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm certainly not. Uh, in that respect, that driven, yeah. You know, my own desire is pretty simple. I think it's not very complex. It does not involve shame or violence, right? Or fear, um, in any large measure. And I know a lot of people who are in some cases, close friends who have over the course of their lives, lives, excuse me, decided or discovered about themselves that there's a certain family of things that turn them on. And having discovered that they're fine with that or, you know, like they, that's what they pursue, the things that turn them on. And I've found in alternative sex circles that that's often the case, you know, that normals or rather um, what they would describe as vanilla sex mm. is <clears throat> just not interesting to them. And they feel like people that are into vanilla sex or that perform vanilla sex are boring or are unenlightened even. That they're just out there like Mormons having sex in the missionary position uh-huh. and – uh, while the, you know, while the real energy sec- of s- sexuality culture is to be found in figuring out your thing, figuring out your trip and, and, uh, exploring it, exploring it with other people. And, and so, you know, I have friends who, who feel like their trip is X and when they meet somebody, one of the first things that they need to talk about is like, Hey, BTW, my trip is this. Are you down? And then the person goes, yeah, I'm down. Or the person goes, I'm not so sure, but I'll try or whatever mm-hmm. it is. You know? Right. And I think there are people whose people I know whose trip is that the other person goes, I'm not so sure, but I'll try. And they're like, that's just what I needed to hear. Mm. And there are other people that, are like, oh, well, you kind of got to be all in with me. But I'm not, I don't have a trip like that, I don't think. Not a strong one, right? If somebody came to me and said, here's my trip, I'd go, oh, well, give that a, give that a roll. But I'm not, um, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the funniest moments in bed where someone says, you know, just do whatever you want 
And I go, hmm, I was <laughs> already. <laughs> that no, that's that's code. That's code for do something different. Yeah, right. Do something bad or do something. Yeah, uh, be be more naughty. Yeah, be more naughty. Mm-hmm. That's not. And, that's not like. You know, I, I'm happy you keep doing what you're doing. That's, you're not doing the thing that I want you to do, but I don't quite want to say it, or maybe right. I don't even know what I want done to me, but it's not whatever you're doing. Yeah. Or it's an extension of right. And, do, and, this, yeah. This thing you're doing, do that, but more. Right. And, and in general, at least I've found that that is usually do that, but, but more violently. Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, put more threat of, of injury into the, into sex, hit me or right. choke me. And that, you know, that ha- was hard for me at first because I was raised, uh, as a feminist, you know, I was raised as a, from at the time I was a young boy, um, my mom was that second, that early second generation of feminist that was trying to raise young men to be, um, the new man. And so their version, and I'm talking about second generation feminists, their version of it, of, of what they wanted a man, um, male sexuality to be, to look like and feel like at least it, it wasn't communicated to me in a way that, that left a lot of opportunity for me to choke somebody, you know, like that was not, that was not the new man, right. Uh, that, that my mother's generation of feminists had in mind. And it's been a long time evolving that as the, as sex positivism and as a recognition of, of, um, the complexity of sex. And, you know, we're living in an era right now where the complexity of sex is again, kind of off the table or it's being reduced down to black and white, black and white questions again for, for the, for the inter, the the immediate future, for this this brief moment in time, we've we're back to a uh, like a binary idea of what sex is in mainstream in mainstream leftist culture, right? There's always going to be alternative sex culture that that doesn't allow for that or 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 scoffs at it or whatever. But it's a confusing time, you know, just as it was in 1984, a confusing time, just as it was in 1969, a confusing time. And in 59, like every decade or so, we have to go back to, we, we have a, we push the boundaries, everything gets confused. And then everybody retreats back to what they think is the simplest solution, which is, you know, uh, close, close all the doors again close all the conversational doors, you know, where we're not even able to talk openly about what, what sex really is. So it's been a long, it's been a a long road for me to be able to be, uh, to even be perform, uh, with, with this kind of 
with the, with my own perform with my own physicality. This is the size and and strength that I have. But I don't. But I, but it never extended to me discovering something in me that was some untapped, repressed violence that was looking for an outlet, mm. which I think does happen. Yeah, to a lot of people. Uh, uh, and I'm, you know, and I'm somewhat masochistic due to the fact that I'm that for, for a lot of my life, like physical pain was one of the ways I could actually feel emotion. What do you mean? When I was little, all my emotions got compressed into a very, very small little bag. Mm -hmm. I was not allowed to feel sad or angry or afraid because there just wasn't room in, in my life, in, in our lives as my family for me to have all those emotions. And so what they, so they all got compressed into, um, <clears throat> into a place where I could be the, I could be the kid that was trying to make everybody happy. We would like to say thank you so much to Linode. Linode is spelled L-I-N-O-D-E, Linode.com. This is where I host everything that I do. This is where 5x5 lives. This is where Fireside.fm, the podcast hosting platform, there are thousands of podcasts on there that people have created. Uh, We do everything over there on Linode. What is Linode? It is a hosting company, but it's different. Instead of having these these uh, old school physical servers, or instead of doing some kind of shared scenario, this is all VPS technology, virtual private servers, where you get your own server up and running on their high-end data center infrastructure. These things have SSD drives in them, so they are super fast. And you can pick your Linux distribution, whichever one you want, You can pick the resources you want dedicated to it. So you're talking about RAM, memory, hard drive, block storage. You can also pick the location for this server in one of their data centers. And they've got so many all around the world. They've got 10 huge data centers where you can have your server. So if you're you're in Texas, don't get get it in there, Dallas, Texas uh, infrastructure. If you're you're in London, they've got one there. You see what I'm saying? You're going to pick the one that's closest to you, closest to your customers. And the plans start at $5 a month. So if you have an application you've built, you want some kind of hosting for files, for data, for whatever it is that you're doing, 5 bucks a month, that's going to get you 1 gig of RAM and the entry-level server. But we've got a better deal than that. Oh, and by the way, they want me to mention, you can all go way, way up to high memory plans that start starting at 16 gigs of RAM. And they've got the block storage which is essentially like your own uh, storage that could grow as big as you want it to grow. You, you pay for what you use. It's genius stuff. They've got, like I said, native SSD storage, 40 gigabit Ethernet to the internet. Intel E5 processors. It's so cool. They've got a great API. If you want to build against their API and auto-deploy stuff, you can do all of that. So much great stuff. I could just go on about it because I love them because this is where I host all my stuff. And you're going to save a bunch of money, $20 credit, which is equivalent to four free months. 
Go to lino.com slash roadwork. That's how you get your $20 credit. If you use the promo code roadwork2018, roadwork2018, and visiting lino.com slash roadwork supports the show, which we want you to do. So go check out Linode. And thanks very much for making the show possible. If something bad happened, if I had any emotion other than um, precocious, it was, it turned into just like catatonic sadness or catatonic uh, checked outedness. So what that meant was that when I was a teenager and I first discovered just like pain in, in the sense of like somebody hitting you hard or you hitting a wall hard or f- jumping off of something crashing, you know, like getting into danger. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed those sensations because I, cause, cause I could feel something, you know, I could feel some, I could feel feelings in the form of the, just the shock of pain. So I would do things. I mean, I had like a party trick, which was that I would stand up on the back of a couch and just let myself fall backwards and just land flat on my back on the floor. God, John. And it was hilarious. How old were you? Oh, 18. You could could recover from that kind of thing pretty quickly back then. Yeah. And I would, I would, I would land so hard it would shake stuff off the shelves, rattle the window. (laughs) And it was a, you know, hell of a party trick. We would, you know, we were Alaskans too. So, you know, we'd throw each other through the window or jump off the roof and all this stuff. And, you know, and I, I did some damage to myself that, uh, that I now at 50 years old, wish I had thought it through more, a little bit more Yeah, that I didn't, I didn't need all these extra scars, but, but so I don't mind being hurt a little bit, but I don't seek it. Right. I'm not, I'm not a masochist like that. I'm looking for, I'm looking for somebody to hurt me. I'm not in, and I'm definitely not interested in being dominated by anybody. Although every woman I've ever been with has tried to dominate me. They're all, you know, very like physically, emotionally. Uh, I don't think any of them ever tried physically. I mean, it's, it's, it's passive dominance. Mm-hmm. They try to do it in a way where, um, where they assume you're just going to go along with their plan and they, and they, and it's always worked for them, right? Because there are a lot of men that perform, uh, perform in public as being strong and confident who are, I just mean, is that more control? Tell them what to do. Is that controlling or yeah. dominating? You know what I mean? Well, like there's a subtle, I feel like there's a subtle difference. Yeah. To go into that. Well, I I feel like controlling is more, well, I want him to do this and you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get him to do it to me. Dominating is more beating someone down or, uh, you know, Ruling, ruling, oh, hold on. I'm looking this up. 
Okay. Yeah, this is. Uh, I'll put this into our show notes. Right here. This is uh, the difference between controlling and dominating. Um, control is to exercise influence over to suggest or dictate the behavior of. With a simple remote, he could control the toy truck. Dominate is to govern, rule, or control by superior authority or power to exert an overwhelming guiding influence over something or someone. And they don't have a sentence of using it in. Oh, um, yeah, that's a horrible example. I'm not even going to read that one. So it sounds like the issue is, is the power to govern or rule or control by superior authority or superior power. Whereas control, it says influencing someone, suggesting or determining the behavior of someone. And here's here's a, a little bit more. Dominating is knowing that you have power and uh, and using it. Controllers or domineering use force manipulation and coercion to exert their will over another person, place, thing, environment. Dominant people persuade others to enact their will inspire and are authoritative and trust themselves with their decisions. I don't know. There is a subtle difference though. I'm not, there is, there is. I'm, you know, uh, I don't personally want to control someone or be controlled. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the game of that that side of the of sexuality is I can't sustain it past a little bit of play acting because I don't you know I don't want to control you do what you want I want you to I want you to affirm that you like what you're doing and do it you know like I don't have a I don't have a um, plan for you mm-hmm. I don't have a plan for me let alone for you. But also I don't, you know, don't you try and tell me what to do. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't feel like that's any of that is very fun past a certain point. And I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to force anybody to do something. Mm -hmm. I I don't, you know, like none of that is, none of that feels very sporting. Now I get I 100% get what people get out of it. Like I, I, I see it and I go, right, right, right. I get it. And I think that in a lot of cases it's, it's about limiting your, your options. Like that's exciting. That takes a lot of the craziness of life away and focuses it down on some, some, you know, diamond tip moments. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like everything is off the table right now. All of your daily concerns and all of your cares are gone. Yeah. And what you are focusing on is my high heel that is planted on your forehead. Like dig it, dig it. I watch, I watch it and I watch it in the world and I go, right. Understood. But for me, there's, you know, there's, it's a lot more intriguing for me to 
to just try to navigate the, 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 like the craziness of just normal, basic human interaction. Right. And, and there's, and there's a lot of, I bring a lot of baggage in, in the sense that I'm not a hundred percent ever confident that you really like me other person. Mm -hmm. And so laying there or, or even standing there and saying, on your knees, slave. <clears throat> the last thing I want is to feel like I'm making somebody do something they don't want. Because what I'm, what I really am seeking is somebody to say, all I want is this. All I want is you. And I'll, and I would walk through fire. Right. And nobody wants to do that. That's really, that's much harder to do than to say, I'm yours. I'm your slave. Make me do whatever you want to, to, to really like take the risk of saying, um, and then the, and the other, the other problem is I don't think anybody is ever in, in, it's very rare that you're in a sexual situation where you're like, this is everything I ever wanted. <laughs> you're the, you are everything I ever wanted. You can always kind of look at somebody and go like, well, it, I mean, you're everything I ever wanted. But if you had a, if you actually had the nose, ears, and tail of a fox, I would kind of be more into this. 